0: Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to spark the connections to advance a thriving planet for all. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. Today we're going to be doing things a little differently. I'm thrilled to dedicate this episode to a fellow podcast producer, who also cares deeply about shining a spotlight on concepts of connection to community and place, the nuance and breaking of stereotypes, and passing the microphone to those who are doing the good, often challenging work on the ground. Today, we will be sharing an episode of Reframing Rural, a podcast created and hosted by Megan Torgerson. Here's some background on the Reframing Rural series, borrowing words from Megan herself. In Season 1, to combat stereotypes and to show the dimension and positivity within rural communities, Megan profiled friends and neighbors who are keeping alive her own community of Dagmar, in the northeast corner of Montana. In Season 2, she spoke with professionals using their talents to foster vitality in their rural communities and address broader systemic inequities. And now, in Season 3, She focuses on concepts of preserving family-owned farms and ranches, resiliency through regenerative practices on the land, and the impacts of rural gentrification and the need to maintain affordability in the Mountain West. Her current season is not only helpful for farm families and those directly facing rural gentrification, but it calls attention to the shared fate of rural and urban communities and the urgency surrounding challenges of the cost-price squeeze, impacts of climate change, and income inequality and divisions. Today on Stories for Action, we're sharing the first episode from Reframing Rural's current or third season. In it, Megan speaks with Sarah Vogel, who is known as the farmer's lawyer. Sarah has spent her career as an attorney advocating for the rights of farmers, women, and Native Americans. This episode will primarily speak to her experience taking on the U.S. government in a class-action lawsuit on behalf of 240,000 farmers who were facing foreclosures during the 1980s farm crisis. The reason I chose this episode to do an episode swap with Megan is not only for my immediate respect for Sarah, upon hearing her story of selfless dedication and fight, and the empowerment of the people on the ground working their tails off to grow food for the world, but also because it touches on something that we're dangerously starving for in our society today. It reminds us of a not-so-distant history where politics were actually about issues, where party lines often were a gray area, and the public was more likely to vote for the candidate who listened to and took action to selflessly serve their constituents, and not so much what we see today, where we so easily jump on bandwagons, blindly cling to one political team, and relish in throwing dirt at one another. It reminds us to keep our eyes wide open, to get involved and use our voice, to hold our elected officials accountable, asking them the hard questions, even when they're from our own registered parties. So on that, here's the first episode of Reframing Rural season three. I'll let Megan take it from here.
1: I grew up hearing about the 80s farm crisis, the record high interest rates, grasshoppers that flew up at my sister's faces as they biked down prairie trails, winters with barely any snow, and dust storms like whiteouts that forced you to pull over on the side of the road. Like many young farmers, my dad worked off farm jobs to support his small children and farm. Fortunately, we were able to hold on to our farm and ranch during a time when farmers across the country lost not only their livelihoods, but their identities, communities, and sometimes families. I was born in 1991, when the pendulum was swinging toward a decade of prosperity. But I knew never to forget about the hard times my parents endured or the dust bowl that forever left its mark on my grandparents' generation. The farmer's lawyer, Sarah Vogel, knows this history intimately. As the attorney behind Coleman versus Block, the landmark class action lawsuit, filed on behalf of 240,000 farmers facing foreclosure during the 1980s farm crisis, she fought like hell to protect family farms across America alongside nine lead plaintiffs from North Dakota.
2: You know, most people are extremely private about their personal financial trauma. And here were farmers who were facing foreclosure. And when I called them and said, will you be a plaintiff on this lawsuit? Can I use your name? Can I use your story? They said yes, and I will never forget Russell Falmer telling me, it may be too late for me, but if I can help someone else, I will. And that's
1: exactly what we were able to do. I'm Megan Torgerson and this is Reframing Rural. Today, a conversation with Sarah Vogel, author of The Farmer's Lawyer, The North Dakota Nine and the Fight to Save the Family Farm, a legal thriller and memoir dedicated to the farmers of America, the ones who feed us all. The Farmer's Lawyer is the only book I've read and thought maybe I should become a lawyer. Sarah's career advocating for farmers, women, and Native Americans is just that inspiring. Her book and our interview begin with a long view of the Vogel family's commitment to justice for farmers, beginning with the history of the Nonpartisan League, the left-wing political party founded by North Dakota socialist Arthur C. Townley to protect farmers during the Great Depression. Sarah's grandfather, Frank Vogel, a dedicated nonpartisan leaguer, was the most trusted advisor of Wild Bill Langer governor of North Dakota from 1933 to 1934 and 1937 to 1939, who, in his first speech as governor, insisted that there can, quote, be no return to prosperity in North Dakota that doesn't begin with the farmer. Sarah inherited this belief, and when the worst economic crisis since the 1930s led farmers to call her at all hours of the day seeking help, she stepped into action. This was the 1980s when, in an effort to reduce government spending, President Reagan's Director of Office of Management and Budget, David Stockman, installed delinquency reduction goals, or foreclosure quotas as they came to be known, that accelerated the payment schedules of farmers borrowing from Farmers' Home Administration. In order to meet these foreclosure quotas, Farmers' Home Administration, a federal agency, sought to persuade farmers to voluntarily liquidate. The results were farm foreclosures and declining farmland values that led some farmers to take their own lives and a few others to threaten to violently overthrow the government. But luckily this book has a happy ending. The due process and fair treatment protections that were provided to indebted family farmers in the Coleman court decisions in the early 1980s were later made into permanent laws by Congress. Congress called these laws the Coleman reforms, and today they provide people with fair appeals for most U.S. Department of Agriculture programs. Foreseeing another farm crisis on the horizon, Sarah published her memoir, in hopes that we learn from past mistakes and come together to help the ones who feed us all. So while the heart of your memoir is the David and Goliath story of your landmark class action lawsuit— In some ways, your memoir begins and ends with the historic figures like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who pursued parity for farmers so they'd have comparable income to townspeople, and his undersecretary of agriculture, Rexford Tugwell, who wished to cure the deeper malady of human erosion in the 1930s. And we can't forget about your forefathers and the mighty members of the Nonpartisan League who have been standing up for farmers in the heartland since 1915. In The Farmer's Lawyer, you write that you hope your book sows seeds for a future agriculture system that is based on human needs and human values. I'm wondering, growing up, how did you see your family and other nonpartisan leaguers stand up for human needs and human values?
2: In my family, the nonpartisan league was a religion. It was not a political party. It was something that was all-encompassing. I remember going to political events. When I was in high school, my father ran for Congress, and I had just gotten my driver's license, so I thought it was the epitome of a fun summer to be the driver. (laughs) (laughs) And it was all over western North Dakota. And whenever we drove anywhere in North Dakota, you you drive. You know, you don't measure trips in miles, you measure them in hours. So it was like three hours to Fargo four and a half hours to Grand Forks, you know, three or four out west. So on all those trips, I was inculcated with the non person league philosophy. And when I was writing the book, I was able to do a deeper dive into the life of people like Rexford Tugwell, who was such a remarkable figure. And he, he set the basis for what is now today the Farmers' Home Administration, the Farm Service Agency, rural housing, programs like that.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: North Dakota in the 30s, they felt that FDR was way too conservative. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> the Nonpartisan League ran in the Republican column because that's where the votes were, but they ran against regular Republicans. And I think Bill Langer, who won in nineteen thirty-two, the same time that FDR won, he won as a Republican, whereas FDR basically swept North Dakota as a Democrat. So people in North Dakota were pretty used to splitting tickets. Mm. But they non-personally felt that FDR was way too conservative. So they were <laughs> <laughs> always pounding on him to do more, do more, do more for for farmers, for small town businesses and and so on so the history in that i brought out in the in the book the farmer's lawyer was really fun to go back into and i read a lot of books mm. in order to write it and then of course it was based on what happened with me and my clients in the 80s but it's built on history
1: i grew up one county north of roosevelt county in montana in sheridan oh. county <laughs> and after starting this project, I later, of course, it hit me. Oh, yeah, it's it's named Roosevelt County because the the residents of that county were so grateful for all of the New Deal programs yeah. um, that he implemented. So, what are some of the the trademark nonpartisan league values that the party was built from? And could you speak a little bit about your grandfather Frank Vogel's role in in really making it a, a successful party in the '30s?
2: My grandfather. Came to North Dakota from Wisconsin as a school teacher in the 19 teens. And that's when North Dakota was in a very much an expansionary mood. And he was a, a, a high school teacher in a small town called Daisy. And that's where he met my grandmother, who was also a teacher there. He became a banker. And in the 1920s, the farm depression hit farm country. So by the time the 30s came around. They had already been in a severe depression for 10 years. So those years, the Nonpartisan League was standing up for farmers, standing up for small businesses, Native Americans. And I think that he probably experienced firsthand the economic injustices that were occurring throughout North Dakota, and so he, he became a non-partisan leaguer. He was in the legislature for several terms in the 20s. And then in 1932, he was the campaign manager for William Langer, who became the governor. And one of the things I grew up with, was very proud of, was that my grandfather and Governor Langer were indicted by the federal government. Those was evil people, basically for selling a newspaper. Wow.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they must not have liked what was written
2: in the pages. <laughs> no, I think not. But they were basically arguing that FDR was too slow, wasn't doing enough, had to get his act together, needed to do more. And my dad told me a story he would always just laugh uproariously But he remembered going to big events, and Governor Langer would invite someone from the federal government to be the keynote speaker, Mm. and they would come because I think at that point he was the senator. So they would come to North Dakota, and he would have them up on the stage, and he would just flatter flatter the guy who was being (laughs) introduced. This is so-and-so, and he's here from Washington, and he has all these employees, and he handles all this stuff, and he's an absolutely fabulous person. And he's now going to tell you why he can't get electricity to your farm.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> he really put the spotlight on him.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then the guy would be on the spot, and he'd say, well, it'll come, it'll come, it'll be right there, you know, so... It was, it was the tactics and, you know, politics was fun back then. I think they had mm. lots of picnics and lots of gatherings and very issue oriented because mm. the Nonpartisan League basically ran on issues and they had a platform that I'll, I'll say it centered on the idea that government should work for people.
1: Mm. Yeah. And that is evidenced by when Wild Bill Governor Langer in 1933 called on the National Guard 30 times to stop foreclosures. Yes.
2: Yeah, there were many, many fewer foreclosures in North Dakota than there were in other comparable states like South Dakota because of the actions that state government under non control was taking for broke farmers and small businesses and homeowners.
1: Yeah. And I like how you also wrote in the beginning of your book how you remember growing up and going into some of the abandoned farm houses, some of the places that might have yeah. foreclosed or people moved on to more favorable conditions yeah. to farm further west. And you spoke about kind of the reverence that you had when you would step into those quiet abandoned yeah. homesteads. Yeah. I, I had a similar experience growing up and yeah, I wonder if you if you thought growing up that you would become the farmer's lawyer and that you would return to your home state and, and work on the behalf of farmers or had you envisioned something different for your life or, or was that kind of always what you wanted to do?
2: That's a very good question. Growing up, I saw political life and being a lawyer as possibilities because of my father and my grandfather. But I don't know that I had that idea as a very young person. But when I went to law school in New York City, I was very much drawn to work like civil rights, consumer protection, and those kinds of options. So when I came back to North Dakota, I think I had had quite a bit of experience. And because I'd been part of big government and been part of a big corporation, as well as working for consumer protection. I wasn't all that daunted by the idea of suing the federal government or going up against big corporations because <sighs> I'd been part of them and they really weren't all that scary. And maybe I was naive. I mean, yeah, actually, I was. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. So even though your dad was like in awe that you would want to work for a corporation, ultimately it probably was helpful for you because then it broke down kind of the the inner workings of what that...
2: My my father was really deeply ashamed of me when I went and was a lawyer for a big Fortune 500 company. He really Mm -hmm. was ashamed because he used to brag that he had in his... 50, 60 years of practicing law never once represented a corporation. So when I was a assistant counsel for a Fortune 500 corporation, that was a low point for my mm-hmm. father. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it seemed to help you when you took on Coleman v. Blockett, at least. <laughs> it, it
2: did. I think I think having a wide variety of experiences and if you're from the Midwest, going to the East Coast or going to the West Coast and having those experiences is is very useful. But I, I was always drawn back to home. When people would ask me, where are you from? I never said New York or Washington, D.C. or Connecticut, mm. all places that I'd lived for years. I always said North Dakota. <laughs> And I think that's something about the Great Plains. It has an impact on the people who live here. It's the sky, it's the prairie, it's the expansiveness, it's the people. It's amazing, I think, the Great Plains.
1: I agree. And I similarly, when people ask where I'm from, I say I'm from Montana instead of saying that I'm from Seattle because it does feel more like home to me than than anywhere else. Before we move into, I, I'd like to speak about the economic conditions of the 70s and things that led into the 80s farm crisis. But, but before that, I want to draw on a couple of things from earlier history that I thought were just fascinating, like the parity programs from FDR and how in your book you kind of equate the loss of the parity programs to a loss of rural population. So between the fifties and sixties, you wrote that the population dropped thirty percent, and then between the sixties and seventies, it dropped another twenty six percent. Yeah. So I don't know if you if you want to add anything else about that time period and and just how how powerful the parity programs were, and also the penny auctions that that farmers did themselves, and the anti corporate farm law that yeah. that North Dakota citizens took uh, into their mm-hmm. own hands and made happen.
2: All of those topics. The parity program is something that I grew up with in the background, but as I was studying the 30s, I understood better how extremely important it was. And parity was basically that farmers should be at parity with the rest of the economy. And there was a formula for measuring parity, and the idea was to keep supply in rough approximation of demand. And when parity was working, then farmers were making more, rural people were doing better. But as parity dropped and dropped and dropped, and by the way, it's still measured by USDA. It's kind of like a ghostly relic of the 30s that they measure parity. And they tweaked the parity ratio several times over the years so that it does not look as bad as it actually is, (laughs) but it kept people in the country at parity with people in the city so that all people could be lifted up at the same time, and it had a huge impact. But one of the problems, of course, is that farm products were not produced at lower than the cost of production. Right now, farmers spend more money raising their wheat and their corn and their other crops than they get from the market. So who benefits? It's the manufacturers, it's the grocery store chains, and so on, not the farmers. And then the federal government programs sort of prop up farmers because farms are an essential part of the national security, I believe. And I think the pandemic really showed how important it is to have food that is produced in the U.S., in our region in our area so that people will have food. It's it's really important, and they understood that in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and then it's been with the attachment to globalized trade that's been forgotten. But the pandemic reminded us that food is as important to our national security as any other factor. So, and who grows food? Farmers.
1: yes. And did parity kind of go out the window with get bigger, get out policies, or was it the Reagan administration that those kind of programs started to fall to the wayside?
2: I think there was a gradual erosion because when parity was working well, people didn't know why times were good, probably, but I think it was because of parity. Mm. And so the loss of parity over time was masked by various government programs or more opportunities for marketing abroad when other countries were having disastrous crop years and so on. I'm not an ag economist. um, (laughs) So in a debate with an ag economist, I wouldn't do all that well. But I saw the impact on human beings. And that's, I think, if you start looking at it, what is the impact on human beings, then you'd say that the parity program is extremely important. People have forgotten about it, but it really was a very good idea. I think it should be brought back. And it's important that people in rural areas have a fair chance at success.
1: Yeah, I really liked how when we first spoke, you discussed how we really need more sociologists to talk about these issues. <laughs> as <laughs> Yeah,
2: one of my, my big dreams is to replace economists with social workers. <laughs> Like USDA has a chief economist and they have a whole slew of economist specialists who keep track of all of these different things. But if we had a department of social work <laughs> yes. and, and they were looking at how are people doing? How are the farm kids doing? How are the people in the countryside? How are the people in the small towns doing? And they, they brought these government programs back to the impact on people That would be a welcome addition to the national debate.
1: Another thing that I loved about your book and highlighting the North Dakota Nine was the human suffering that you profiled that I think is really important for us to remember when we're talking about these issues.
2: Yes, it was in the Reagan administration that a number of people got into high public office who had as their core belief that the government should get out of agriculture, get rid of parity, get rid of these government programs that made low-cost loans to farmers, you know, like eliminate all that and like let people just stand on their own two feet. They had that as a driving impetus and they wanted to get rid of this whole low-cost farm loan program that had been set up in the 1930s and had worked so well for so many years, helped so many farmers start farms, establish themselves, pay for the farms, pay for the loans. The government did not lose money on these low-cost loans. Mm. All the loans were paid back. The government actually made a profit. There are very few defaults as long as it was run appropriately. But in the 70s, they made some changes to those loan programs. And then in when Ronald Reagan got elected, the government decided to shut the whole thing down, and they were merciless, merciless. The way they were getting farmers to leave their farms was to deprive them of all of the income from their farm, mm. and that was done overnight. Their bank accounts were emptied. They couldn't get a penny from their dairy checks or their or their wheat checks and it was sudden and it was ruthless and they were given a hearing if you could call it that maybe months later to see if that was the right thing to do or not mm. <laughs> and the hearing officer would be a person who had already weighed in on shutting that farm down so they were they were biased it, it was an unbelievably cruel system and it was intolerable to me so that's why I felt compelled to bring this lawsuit to make this program the Farmers' Home Administration. It's now called the Farm Service Agency, and they make farm loans. It's a great program. So I used to say that I, who was suing USDA and the Farmers' Home Administration, was their biggest fan, because I wanted (laughs) it to work the way it was supposed to work. It was really being operated in a cruel and heartless way and not the way it was intended.
1: Yeah. This brings to mind one quote from your book. You said, I pictured these families, some with children and dairy cows named Susie and Sweetheart. These were families with hayfield and croplands named after the original settlers, like the Carlson's Quarter, Schmidt's pasture. These were families with memberships in churches and social groups, Sons of Norway, the Bohemian Hall. These families were the real people I had longed to work for when I felt isolated in my office in the Treasury Department. They were so much more than stats on a memo.
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: (laughs)
1: Support for this episode comes from Montana Farmers Union, an organization dedicated to supporting farms, ranches, people on the ground and the communities who surround them. Learn more at montanafarmersunion.com. So could you just speak about the early moments of starting this case and the first phone call that you got that started the whole <laughs> whole big journey going?
2: Well, the first phone call came from someone that I had known in high school. And by this point, I was already aware of the Farmers' Home Administration because I'd been at the Federal Trade Commission enforcing the Equal Credit Opportunity Act when the law was just brand new. And one of the entities that we had jurisdiction over was USDA and the Farmers' Home Administration. And, you know, during that period of time, we saw big national organizations who were discriminating. We went after Montgomery Ward. We went after Bloomingdale's. (laughs) Wow, <laughs> like a whole bunch of creditors amical oil there was redlining going on there was discrimination against women but the worst of them all was this outfit I'd never heard of before which is called the Farmers Home Administration and I couldn't believe it it was an agency of the federal government and why were we getting so many complaints about them and so we went over to USDA and thought that, well, they'd just change their ways. But there was real resistance. I was just out of law school, and back then there were very few women lawyers. But I looked at their application form, and it the bottom of the application form had signature line, and one said farmer, and the other said wife.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can't imagine reading that.
2: <laughs> so it was just pulling nails these bureaucrats did not want to change their ways and actually this was under democrats Mm, i i I think uh well it didn't matter it didn't matter i mean they were these were not political appointees these were career bureaucrats but they had their way and they they didn't want to change and and they were exceptionally condescending and arrogant and (laughs) I, I said I would get even. So when the farmer called and he started to complain about Farmer's Home, I was disposed to believe him. Mm-hmm. I was disposed to believe that that agency would behave that badly and be violating farmer's rights. So I started with that one farmer, and that was basically a freedom of information that case. He was just trying to get his records. Mm-hmm. But I ended up learning quite a bit about it. And then when I came back to North Dakota other farmers started to call me and they started telling me these tales of mistreatment and the conduct of the agency that was just unbelievable. And I learned that the agency was now run by people who didn't believe in the agency or its mission. They wanted to Mm -hmm. get rid of the Farmers Home Administration. And the way of doing that was to foreclose on farmers. So they had this practice of like basically pushing farmers out. And they did it by starving them out. And if that didn't work, then they would foreclose. Mm. And it, it was really bad. Before I knew it, I had people calling me from all over the country. My phone number was on lists saying, there's a lawyer in North Dakota who will help you. And <laughs> Pete Calls came in from all over the country. And I, I wanted to do, like, a lot of cases. And then I, I got a small grant for $15,000 from the J. Roderick MacArthur Foundation. And that was enough mm. for me to say I will do one case in North Dakota. And that was really naive on my part to think that that amount of money... <laughs> <laughs> but naivete is a secret weapon, <laughs> so that's
1: how the case started. Wow. How much do you think the general public knew about what was going on with farmers at that time? Was it known?
2: yeah, yeah, okay. there was a a general recognition that there was a farm crisis, and it was there was a lot in the national news, and there was a lot going on in Congress. And it was interesting, too, because not only was was USDA at the time, and this was under John Block, who was Secretary of Agriculture, but not only were farmers protesting and upset and complaining, but also Congress was. Mm. Congress was saying, you're not doing this the way you ought to be doing it. You are not following our laws. Mm. And there were resolutions and complaints, but it didn't matter because John Block and others were led mostly by the director of Office of Management Budget, David Stockman. They wanted to get rid of this whole agency. So Mm. that was the plan and I didn't know all of that. I just thought this is mistreatment and we can step in and we'll get a judge and we'll stop it. I kept thinking... (laughs) that it wouldn't have to go that far, but it certainly did.
1: (laughs) So the accelerated payment schedules of borrowers and the foreclosure quotas in which FMHA district directors had delinquency reduction goals of 23%, was that all directed down from Stockman and from kind of this larger goal of wanting to shut down the Farmers Home
2: Administration? Yes, yes. Stockman had issued an edict to all of the agencies that they had to reduce, if they had loans, they had to collect them. So they, they were getting orders from Stockman, and then that went to the head of the Farmers' Home Administration who believed that the agency shouldn't even be there. So mm. he sent out directives to all the states that you have to reduce the delinquencies within months. Mm. And if you don't do that, then we're going to take away your home loan programs, which are extremely popular
0: in their Mm. states.
2: So this set in motion a cascade of collection actions and pressure on farmers to quit. And if they didn't quit, they were going to face foreclosure by the federal government. It was very, very daunting. And what this did too, then, is it pushed land onto the market. So during the Mm. 70s, land values had been going up. And then In about 82, they were flat, and then all these farms went on the market, and when appraisers value farmland, they use recent sales. So many of these sales were not foreclosure sales. They were forced sales Mm. because of pressure from farmers' home. And all of a sudden, land values started to go down, and then they dropped like a rocket, and then that pushed more lenders into fear that if they didn't collect, they would be left holding the bag and not be able to get all their money back. And it was just a frenzy. And farmers were were basically helpless, but it started with this foreclosure. I think it started with this foreclosure reduction memo that came from Farmers Home. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book (laughs) is because I really don't want to see anything like this ever happen again. Farmers' home for 50 years had had a really solid repayment rate. Mm. And some years the farm economy is not so great, but other years it will be better. So if, if lenders are patient, they will come out okay. It's really important that people look back at that history and they see what could happen that's bad and not repeat those same mistakes. In the 80s, I had the benefit of having grown up in the nonpartisan league, hearing all about the different things that have been done in North Dakota by Governor Langer, and then my grandfather had been manager of the state owned bank. And so I knew what happened in the 30s could happen again. And in the 30s, the mantra of the non League was stick with the farmer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let the farms go. Stick with them. Be patient. They will come out of this. This is not their fault. So that was the mantra I grew up with. And so mm-hmm. in the 80s, I was able to take these lessons of the 30s that I had had the good fortune of hearing about all that time. And now I wrote this book about the 30s and the 80s so that in the 2020s we don't make the same mistakes that were made in the past and I'm I'm really happy that I think the
1: message is getting out do you have inklings that that things are kind of headed in the direction that they they went in the 80s and in the 30s well
2: yes it depends on how you look at it like do farmers make enough money from their farming and their ranching to keep their farms and ranches afloat? Probably not. Not always, yeah. Today, that gap, which is called the cost price squeeze, is masked by a, of a wide variety of federal government programs to support farmers. And amongst them are crop insurance programs where Farmers don't pay the full cost, different payment programs, set-aside programs, you you name it. There's a lot of them, and I I don't pretend to be an authority on them. But underlying it all is this concern that if those government programs were taken away, then the farmers would be helpless because the markets aren't fair. We need better antitrust law enforcement so that farmers have options for selling their animals and their crops, and we need better regulation, and we need a whole host of programs to help people get started in farming. There's real problems today. Farmers are, in general, getting older and older, and it's harder and harder for young farmers to start, and that's a crisis too, and it's in plain sight.
1: I agree, and I think one of the farmers, or you wrote in your book that in the 80s, farmers weren't looking for more credit. They were looking for better prices. Yes. And so we can't just put Band-Aids on of more credit or or farm programs that, that aren't really solving the the, yeah. the base issue, that the cost of production right. is higher than what they're getting at the market. So it's a big
2: problem, but there are a number of farm groups and organizations that are out there working And I have little bookmarks that I (laughs) give out to to people. The bookmarks recommend that non-farmers go look at the websites of the National Farmers Union, a Farmers Legal Action Group, which is a nonprofit law firm that works with farmers nationwide. It's absolutely great. And, of course, Willie Nelson's Farm Aid. Yes. (laughs) And Farm Aid is having a concert that's coming up and that concert will give money to a whole wide array of farm organizations that are doing God's work out in the countryside, helping farmers and ranchers. So I think like supporting those organizations and uh, following their lead and asking politicians questions about what they're doing to help farmers is a good idea. Like in North Dakota, I'm suggesting to all my friends that when that somebody knocks on the door and says, I'm running for the, the House or the Senate, or they meet somebody running for statewide office at the fair or something like that, and the politician or aspiring politician says that they would like your vote, you say, well, yes, I'd love to visit, but first, tell me, what are you doing for farmers?
1: <laughs> I love that you're telling people that, and... I hope that people who don't grow up in states like North Dakota and Montana, or who don't maybe personally know a farmer, also know that they should ask that question too. Exactly. Yeah, that this issue is everybody's issue.
2: Yes. One of the things I'm feeling really optimistic about is the resurgence of farmers' markets and mm. farm to table restaurants and the recognition that that's where food comes from. So I think that's good. But again, if you ask your politicians, what are you doing for farmers? Then I'll listen to all your other, <laughs> other issues. <What? laughs> and and um, just making them think about it a little bit might be what's needed.
1: Yeah. I watched the film country this week oh, and <laughs> I did you was cry? really did you I cry? did cry. Yes, yes. I
2: did. <laughs> but it's it's also joyous.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think farm aid and films and and your book that really, again, speak to that human element of what farmers stand to lose if they lose their farms, that it isn't just a business. I think that's really important. And there's one quote I'd like to pull from your book to kind of bring it back a little bit to Coleman v. Block. You wrote, losing home is traumatic. Losing a farm is even more so. For family farmers, everything was at stake their livelihood, their heritage, their standing in the community, their school, their church, their legacy, and their identity. And yeah, yeah. so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to a couple of the North Dakota Nine plaintiffs and just kind of the identity, their identities that were at stake when you all were working to fight against the USDA.
2: Well, now you're going to make me want to tear up because they were so amazingly... Heroic, and that's why the subtitle of the book is The North Dakota Nine and the Fight to Save the Family Farm. Because, you know, most people are extremely private about their personal financial trauma. And here were farmers who were facing foreclosure, and when I called them and said, will you be a plaintiff on this lawsuit? Can I use your name? Can I use your story? They said yes. And I will never forget Russell Falmer telling me, it may be too late for me, but if I can help someone else, I will. Mm -hmm. So this doesn't happen to other people. And that's exactly what we were able to do because when we went to court, and they couldn't all be in the courtroom that day, but the judge had read all of their affidavits and he knew what had happened to them. Dwight Coleman, who was the first-named lead plaintiff, it was alphabetical, was just a young farmer. He'd grown up in a farm family that had been farming for generations, probably back to colonial times, and they moved out west and west and west. And he had just gotten this beginning farmer loan, and there were reverses, and he was told you have to get out. I think he'd only been farming 18 months. They were going to foreclose on him. And it was like, I'm a beginning farmer. This is a beginning farmer loan. It was just awful. He wasn't offered a hearing. He wasn't told how he could defend himself. When he heard that I was looking for plaintiffs, he came to a picnic meeting and he told me his story. And it was like, oh my goodness, this, (laughs) what had happened to him was so illustrative of what was happening to so many other people, and he said I could use his story. Hmm. So I still see him from time to time. By the way, one of the happy things about this is that even though the government had said that every one of these North Dakota 9 was a hopeless case, they were definitely going to lose their farms, it was all over, they were bad managers, blah, blah, they farmed for decades Hmm. (laughs) after the lawsuit wrapped up. So they were... They were good farmers, yeah. but those were bad times. So the North Dakota Nine, I think people who watch the movie Country, which is really like a documentary. The movie Country is set in Iowa in the summer of probably 82, 83 in there. And I was sending the affidavits of my lead plaintiffs, to Jessica Lang, who was really the driving force behind that movie. She was the lead actress, but she was also the person who created the idea of the movie, who brought it all together. And then she went around in Iowa to real farm families who were suffering through the same thing. So the script of the movie Country that you, you watched is so true to life. And at the very end of the movie... There's a teletype of a news story announcing the national class action. For people who don't want to read the book, at least rent or buy the video of the movie Country
1: I love that the impacts of the Coleman case weren't just the Coleman reforms, but it was also your impact on the cultural consciousness surrounding the 80s farm crisis, like through the country film, which also just transported me back to my farm home growing up, or you hear the price of wheat being broadcasted (laughs) on the radio. It it was really, really good. Um, And also the Life magazine article, which I I read through the scans on your website. And I loved how you talked about the journalist. What was his name again? Yeah, Richard Woodley. Yeah, how he was less interested in parachuting into rural communities and going straight to a foreclosure sale. But he wanted to speak to farmers who wanted to talk to him. And he wanted to tell that story through your perspective.
2: Yeah, and he brought along this phenomenal photographer, Gray Villette who was, I didn't know it, but he was a world-famous photographer Wow! at the time. I had no idea. He was very quiet. He always had a camera with him, but he and Richard just sort of accompanied me, and I loved it because they drove and they bought dinner. And <laughs> yeah. You- they were even, like, in a way, babysitters when I had to go in. <laughs> but it was a great, great experience. But they wanted to tell the story also of... The suffering that this treatment was causing farmers and people. It was like, there's a photojournalism essay in Life magazine. It was pretty remarkable. It had a big impact, I think, on awareness, and Mm -hmm. it also had a big impact on me because that came out in, I think it was November of 82. And all of a sudden, I started getting calls from all over the country. Mm. I was getting mail that said, Sarah Vogel, North Dakota. And they would find my rural mail. Oh, my gosh. Mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> so it certainly let me know that this was a you know really severe national
1: problem. I really like how you've also paralleled the story of the North Dakota Nine with your own personal story. And, and the journey that you went through to try to get yourself out of debt and also make it as a a single mom. And at one point you talk about uh, your son, Andrew, who so sweetly asked if like, why don't you just work at the daycare instead of um, (laughs) working on this big case? Yeah. And that was actually quite a good
2: suggestion because I would have made more money Mm. assisting at a daycare than I did as a lawyer and it would have been better hours and everything. But after a while, when I got started working with these farmers, I could not leave them. Mm. I could not leave them. It, it didn't matter how, you know, my, my phone was disconnected, locked out of my office, no money for food. It didn't matter. I couldn't leave them because yeah. I viewed myself as basically their only defense and they were so so supportive of me i mean they knew i didn't have gas money and they helped me get gas cuz they would always have a tank at their mm-hmm. farm <laughs> and they brought food and they came and did carpentry or they whatever mm. however they could help they helped they were great you know if a lawyer out there is looking for a really wonderful client look for a farmer mm. <laughs> And they loved to explain things. I I grew up in town. I didn't know anything. And they were the best teachers. They Mm -hmm. told me how hog farms worked and grain farms worked and the livestock industry and what all these different terms meant because it was, it's like another language. But they were patient and they taught me what I needed to know. And I wasn't shy about asking I think Mm. I think that was maybe an advantage of being a woman lawyer is that I was less reluctant to look macho yeah yeah (laughs) I didn't mind saying what does that mean I tell me and then the farmers would just love it they were like (gasps) be off and running with their explanation of how things worked (laughs) So. It was a great experience
1: and and I loved, I really loved working with farmers, but it was very tough. It might have even been a benefit that you grew up in town because sometimes I feel bad asking questions that growing up on a farm, I feel like I should know, but it's great that you asked all the questions that you needed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And they they definitely wanted their lawyer to know a little bit more about farming and ranching. (laughs) They had an incentive to be good teachers too. It was really even though it was like at times very scary, depressing, I mean it was like very frightening even sometimes, it was overall a good experience. And you know, and I think the fact that I was going through hard times too gave me greater empathy. Yeah. And understanding. And I also noticed sometimes that most of the farmers were couples, and most of the time the women were just ignored. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But they were like full partners in the farm, and they were doing essential work. And I noticed that as people would come to my office, one of them maybe would completely fall apart, Mm -hmm. but the other would keep it together. And sometimes the man was falling apart and the woman mm-hmm. would keep it together, or the woman would fall apart and the man would keep it together. But they were teams, they were partners, and they got through it together. And typically, they didn't tell the kids.
1: So there was one plaintiff that you worked on with Coleman v. Block, and that was Crow's Heart Family. And a chapter that really stuck with me after I read your book was about the Garrison Dam and how it displaced 80% of Mandan Hidatsa and Arikara tribes and the effect that that had on Crow's Heart and really how they were stuck between the bureaucracy of the BIA and the USDA. So, I was wondering if we could speak just a little bit about your work with Native American farmers through that case and through Keeps Eagle versus Vilsack that you that you later took on.
2: Yes, Back in the 80s, when I was doing the Coleman versus Block case, I knew that if the government was treating white farmers this badly, I could not imagine how they were treating Native American farmers. So I definitely wanted to find a Native American farmer. So I reached out through the grapevine and I got a call back, and it was Dwight Crow's heart. And he and his wife were Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara. They had been on this land in North Dakota since they welcomed Lewis and Clark. Mm-hmm. Lewis and Clark stayed with predecessors of the Mandan, Hidatsa, Arikara. You know, they kept them alive. They were farmers, they had these big farms, and over the years, They had been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, and then finally they were drowned out by a great big dam called Garrison Dam. And my hometown was Garrison, um, so it was right really nearby where I grew up, and I remember seeing the water come up as a kid. So that was the hardest chapter of the whole book. I think I probably read 30 books or 40 books, Mm. and... I don't know how many drafts I did and trying to condense all of this history and the importance of Native American agriculture to our country. So, Dwight Crowshart and his family told that story mm. through their affidavit and their participation mm. in the lawsuit. And many, many years later, I had the chance to participate in an Equal Credit Opportunity Act case, Mm. again, against USDA. And this took me back to my time at the FTC when I had been working on this same law. So I volunteered to work on a national class action seeking equal credit opportunity for Native American farmers and ranchers. And we all thought that the case would be over in a few years, but it ended up lasting total, beginning to end 19 years And nine months.
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
2: It basically settled after about 12 years of ferocious litigation, ferocious litigation against USDA. It settled under President Obama. But one of the beautiful things about this case is that, well, we got, I think, $740 million. We made a lot of reforms to the way USDA does business and most of the claims i think 85% of the claims were paid were approved and paid and we had leftover money we had mm-hmm. a lot of leftover money and so one of the things that came out of it was the formation of a big national charity called the Native American Agriculture Fund and that arose out of the lawsuit it was approved by the judge wow and It's completely Native American-led. The board is all Native Americans, farmers and ranchers. You can go to their website. It is phenomenal. Just yesterday, they made $11 million worth of grants to small nonprofits all over the country, and they're making such a big difference. And another thing that I think is making a big difference is the creation of a Equity Commission, and Mm -hmm. I was named to the Agriculture Subcommittee of the Equity Commission, and we are charged by Congress with making recommendations for changes to USDA to make the programs of USDA more Mm -hmm. equitable. And one of the proposals that I'm making is to revise the appellate process for civil rights complaints Mm -hmm. so that People who have civil rights complaints can also have the benefits of the National Appeals Division, which I think grew out of the reforms in the Coleman case that were adopted by Congress. So there's there's a big long arc of history, you know, with years and years of changes and improvements so that farmers have more due process that they didn't have before the Coleman versus Block case. And now I'm trying to, I guess, put a ribbon around it (laughs) and provide due process for civil rights complaints as well.
1: Wow. One of your parents' friends in your book, you write, wrote your parents a letter and they wrote, you must be very proud of the excellent and successful way that Sarah is handling the FMHA case. And I think that this friend would say she's also very proud of how you are continuing the (laughs) legacy. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. That lady was a really remarkable nonpartisan leaguer. Mm. So if the nonpartisan league were proud of the work I was doing today, I would be very, very, very pleased.
1: <laughs> I think I think that they would be and you're such a hero of uh, the farmer's lawyer to so many and I, I, I really look up to you after reading the book and am inspired to take more action in this fight. And there's one quote that I'd like to leave us off with and then ask the question of what regular people, what everyday people can also do to contribute to supporting the family farm system of agriculture. But the quote that I'd like to preface that with is from FDR, and you share it in your book, and it begins, no cracked earth, no blistering sun, no burning wind, no grasshoppers, are a permanent match for the indomitable American farmers and stockmen and their wives and children who have carried on through desperate days and inspire us with their self-reliance, their tenacity, and their courage. It was their father's task to make homes. It is their task to keep those homes. It is our task to help them with their fight. So how can we help farmers in their fight today?
2: (sighs) Well, we can reach out to farm organizations that are doing this work. By the way, Farm Aid has a list of hundreds of them, and many are small, many are underfunded, and reach out to them and then do what you can to buy as close to the farmer as you can and tell the politicians that they need to make sure the antitrust laws are enforced, that they need to give farmers fair markets that they need to protect farmers against rapacious corporations you know and just because a corporation puts the word farm in their name doesn't make them a farmer like d- do a deeper dive and we also need democracy reform so that our country is not run by corporations it needs to be run by people that's what the premise of the United States is about is a country that is to be run on behalf of the people of the country, not corporate America. So the list goes on and on, but I would say people should be active and involved and not discouraged and reach out to other people who are doing the same kind of work. If they can't do things themselves, they can contribute money Mm -hmm. to others who are working in this area. There's a whole host of farm organizations that are trying to turn the tide, and they need our support.
1: Thank you to Sarah Vogel, Beth Schatz-Kahler, and my cousin Tiffany Vinge for making this episode possible. Visit Sarah's episode page at reframingrural.org to find links to her memoir, The Farmer's Lawyer, and numerous resources mentioned in this episode, like the National Farmers Union, Farm Aid, and the Native American Agricultural Fund. Next month, I'll bring you with me to my hometown, Dagmar, Montana, the site of our first season coming home, and where I'll share a new story on my father Russ's retirement from wheat farming this fall. This episode will also feature succession stories from other farmers in Sheridan County and explore how amid an aging farmer population, the next generation, including Dagmar farmer, Tanner Jorgensen, is making plans for the future of their family's multi-generational farms. I think it's really easy to be pessimistic about the future, just the natural way that farmers think You know, commodity prices are down. We were just in talking about fertilizer prices yesterday. Oh my lord, it's expensive. I mean, we spend more money on fertilizer than most people spend on their houses.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's every year, that's not one year, that's every year. So there's that's the new name of the game is managing risk. But I also think you need to look at it in terms of there's a big opportunity out here too. I produced and co-edited today's story on Duwamish Aboriginal territory, with recordings captured on Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara lands. Reframing Rural's episode and theme music was composed and recorded by Aaron Spieldener and Hazy Bay Music. Aaron Spieldener was also the principal editor of this episode. Season 3 Groundwork is funded in part by Humanities Washington, Humanities Montana, Headwaters Foundation, and listeners like you. Funding for this episode was also provided by Montana Farmers Union. Visit montanafarmersunion.com to learn more. To access resources referenced in this episode, full transcripts, and to make a donation, visit reframingrural.org. Reframing Rural is a fiscally sponsored project of the Montana History Foundation and an original series by Tree Ring Records, LLC. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you so much to Megan Torgerson and the Reframing Rural team for this episode. I'm so glad we were able to do this podcast swap with you. If you haven't already, give a listen to Reframing Rural's first two seasons and subscribe to get new episodes from their current third season, where they dig deeper into concepts of farm and ranch succession, human health and environmental resiliency through regenerative agriculture, and the impacts of rural gentrification and living affordability in the Mountain West. Reframing Rural is available on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and you can follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you all so much for joining us here on Stories for Action. You can follow all of our film and podcast work on Facebook and Instagram and at storiesforaction.org. We'll be back in January with original episodes touching on everything from bipartisan climate policy to watershed groups, community building through local food, and more stories that share connections between people and to the environments that we're a part of.